Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 246. We've got Dr. Stephen Guillenet on the podcast. I'm super excited about it. He's a researcher and author of one of our favorite books on eating behaviors called The Hungry Brain. If you've been listening to our podcast over the last five or six years, you know that we have recommended this book over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, yeah, he's on the podcast today. So really excited about the interview I did with him. I'll let him introduce himself and give you his academic pedigree and what he's up to now. Uh, but before we get into this week's podcast, a few announcements. First up, yes, I did have a powerlifting meet this past weekend. Yes, it went awesome, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. We'll wait till next week's episode when we get Dr. Baraki back online uh, to talk about it in full. But if you want to see the highlights, head over to my Instagrams, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. You can see my third attempts on each of the lifts. The YouTube video will be coming out shortly for how the meet went if you're interested in that. And if you're not interested in powerlifting, you can just, you know, jettison the last 15 seconds from your from your memory. Um, also on YouTube, we have our third episode of Tech Support. That's where I review your lifts, your technique, and give you some feedback for free. Uh, so you can check that out. It's on YouTube. If you want to be on a future episode of Tech Support, send me your lift, lifts to mediabarbellmedicine.com. Ideally, it's landscape, and ideally, it's a multi-rep set. It allows me to give you the best feedback, so you can check that out. And we also have some of our Q&A vids up on the, uh, on the channel as well. So if you like watching, uh, some of our uh, some of our Q and A sessions; those are on YouTube as well, and we keep releasing those week by week. Also, we have a flash sale on our Perry RX with caffeine. So we completely reformulated Perry RX based on the latest evidence. If you're looking for a pre workout supplement or Perry workout supplement, that's why we named it Perry RX. That has all the latest evidence based ingredients in the correct amounts, no proprietary blends, and is third party tested to make sure that what's on the label is the only stuff that's in the supplement itself, you might consider Barbell Medicine's PerryRx supplement. Use code PERRY15 to get 15% off. That ends today, October 25th. Well, technically October 26th at midnight Pacific Standard Time. So you have the rest of today to uh, go over there and check that out. It's on the website linked in the show notes below. Last but not least, we do have our two-day health and performance seminars coming up in Australia. And so there's a few spots left. We'll be in both Sydney and Perth. So if you're going to be in the area or could be in the area and you want to attend a barbell medicine seminar, check it out. Also linked in the show notes below. Okay. So I've been a big fan of Dr. Guinea's work for many years. Wanted to get him on the podcast. And here was the interview I did with him last week. All right, Dr. Guinea, thank you so much for joining me on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before we dive into this interview, I'd just like if you can give the audience uh, sort of a better appreciation of your background and what you're doing now. We, we recommend your book. We've rec been recommending it since like 2018. So uh, people are aware of you, but I just want to let you tell it in uh, your own words. Yeah, so I my background, uh, undergrad was biochem, then I moved into neuroscience for grad school. I was working on neurodegenerative disease and transitioned to studying obesity 
at the University of Washington in Mike Schwartz's lab. And particularly, we're interested in understanding what about the regulation, the neurobiological regulation of body fatness changes in the development of obesity. So we have these brain circuits that regulate appetite, that regulate body fatness. What about that system is changing that allows and maintains obesity? So, um, and since then, I'm not in academia anymore, but I maintain a role um, in science communication in this area. So I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what research is going on. And, um, and in particular, I wrote my book, The Hungry Brain, and really tried to collect all the evidence I could on the brain systems that regulate um, that regulate eating behavior, and particularly that cause us to overconsume. So, what are the um, what are the brain circuits that are most important in eating behavior? How are those impacted by genes and environment? And what can we do about that? So that's kind of what my book revolved around. And that involved research in some areas that I was an expert in and some areas that I wasn't an expert in, like anthropology and some other areas. Um, and just trying to put together a, a high level account of what's going on that the average person can understand. And uh, since then, I've continued to be involved in science communication. I continue to communicate about ob obesity research and the neuroscience of eating behavior. I'm also involved in um, work around work in communication around misinformation and the impact of nutrition misinformation in particular. And related to that is Red Pen Reviews, which is an organization that I'm the director of, a nonprofit that publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about all of it. It's very exciting to have you, like I said. And uh, yeah, people, they, they always ask us, they're like, oh, what nutrition books do you recommend? And they, I don't know what they expect us to say. And then <laughs> when we lead them into your, your text that uh, I think it was published in 2017, they read it and, and invariably you know, minds are blown and we get some feedback from that. So it'll be, it's, uh, it's nice uh, to put a bow on this and say, and here's the guy who wrote it and he's going to explain maybe this, uh, uh <laughs> a, maybe a different way that, uh, uh, is accessible. So I want to talk about food related behaviors, but I want to step back for a sec and kind of start with hunger. And, and many people describe hunger as a sort of conscious experience where food is desired. You become aware of this, you know, of your appetite as it were, um, which is a result of many different inputs being kind of integrated together. Uh, if you were going to describe hunger to somebody, like how would you, you know, where would you start and kind of how would you go with that? Yeah, to me, hunger is the brain's perception that there is an energy deficit. That's one way to put it. There's a, it's a perceived energy deficit by non-conscious parts of the brain that are responsible for regulating energy. That's not a complete explanation, but I think it's a, it's a decent starting point. And so essentially, and, and to draw a distinction first, we can draw, we can say that hunger is different from cravings because craving, a craving is more of a food specific motivational state. So with the craving, you want a piece of chocolate, you want 
French fries, you want something really specific. Whereas hunger is a non-specific motivational drive to consume energy. So when you're really hungry, you're not going to be very picky about what you're eating. You just want to eat something. And the more calorie dense, the better. You want to satisfy that perceived need for energy. And um, the reason I say it's perceived, a perceived need for energy is because hunger occurs in people who are quite energy replete. So someone who has, even a lean person has enough fat on their bodies to not eat anything for about a month, the average lean person. And you imagine that a person with obesity has several times that amount of body fat. So they're not really in any immediate need of energy, but yet there is a brain perception that there is a need for energy around mealtimes. Now that's that's a really uh, interesting uh, interesting and important point to make. That is again, it's not maybe a sort of need insofar you're going to die if you don't have food, but the brain through various circuits are, is you know suggesting, hey, you should probably eat something. Um, what's as far as different factors that kind of get integrated into this perception of of needing energy of being in an energy deficit. Are there a a number of main factors that you sort of think play that uh, play that part or or contribute? Yeah. So the main parts of the brain that are involved in um, the perception in in energy regulation, I I should say, and ultimately the perception of whether you need energy or not, are the brainstem, which regulates short term body energy status, and the hypothalamus that regulates long term energy status. So the brainstem. And and this is, by the way, this is not cut and dried. Each one of those plays a role in the other. So I'm I'm simplifying a little bit because both of them play a role in long term. Both of them played a role in short term, but they're mostly specialized, as I said. And um, the brainstem receives lots of inputs from the gut, and so it has a lot of information about the volume of food you ate. The, the chemical composition of the type of, of the food you ate. So carbohydrate, fat, protein, salt, all, all the um, chemical compounds that you consumed, a lot of pertinent information is getting detected in the gut and transmitted up to the brainstem and integrated. And then the hypothalamus is receiving some signals from the brainstem and is also receiving um, signals of the size of your fat reserves via a hormone called leptin. And so your hypothalamus knows how much fat is on your body by measuring that hormone leptin. And if that hormone starts to drop, that triggers that triggers a uh, compensatory response where your body is going to try to get more energy. So those are the the two systems that are involved. And so you have the hypothalamus that's kind of setting the long-term tone on the system. And then you have the brainstem that's setting the shorter term tone, like meal to meal, like how, what, how much food do you have in your gut right now versus the hypothalamus is like, what's your long-term energy status via how much fat you have on your body compared to how much your hypothalamus thinks you should have. So that those are the systems. And in terms of the inputs that are influencing them, it has to do with the brainstem, primarily with what your gut contents are, but also to some degree, sensory inputs when you eat the food, 
what it smells like, what it tastes like, what it looks like. Also your gut contents and how those are stimulating all those receptors we were talking about, the chemical composition and the volume of that food. And then the input that your hypothalamus is getting, um, it's getting a lot of different things, but one of the important inputs is coming from that leptin signal, the amount of fat that you have on your body. Right. It's like you've got 50,000 kilocalories of energy just hanging out. You're, you're good. Or you have 5,000 kilocalories. You should probably eat some. Um, but I, I think when you're discussing this, you know, people at, at home are listening and they're thinking, okay, so this is how, you know, these main sort of maybe like biological inputs into hunger. Uh, what level of consciousness like do people have over this? I mean, obviously, me saying this, I'm thinking mm, none because you you can't really think yourself uh, into not being hungry. Again, you're kind of just more made aware that you are in fact hungry. So uh, you know when you're when you're laying this out as far as like how much control we might have over feeling hungry or not feeling hungry. Yeah, what level of consciousness do we have over those sort of systems? I think very little. Um, so if you think about hunger, for example. You don't choose whether or not you want to feel hungry, right? That's just something that arises as a result of this non-conscious brain processing. And the processing is actually quite complex. There's a lot that goes that is integrated into that signal that is completely below our conscious awareness. So all we are experiencing is whether we feel hungry, whether we're experiencing that motivational drive to eat food. But there are a bunch of different physiological and sensory signals that are going into that into that processing. So it's yeah, it's largely below our conscious awareness. We can, of course, choose to ignore the, the hunger. So it's not like we don't have any control over our behavior, right? So if you feel hunger, you're not deciding to feel that hunger, but you can decide not to eat food when you eat when you feel hungry. So there is, you know, obviously there is some degree of conscious control. However, the brain is not really, those non-conscious systems are not really designed to be ignored indefinitely. Those are survival signals. And so they're very persuasive in the long run. It's very hard to ignore those signals in the long run. I think some people can do it. I think some people just have like in, you know, iron wills and it's like, just imagine like if if someone's never seriously dieted, an analogy that might be good is imagine you have to feel thirsty all the time and you can't drink or you can only drink a little bit. Like what would that feel like to go through every single day feeling thirsty all the time and, and not being able to satisfy your thirst? Like you could probably do it for a day. If you were motivated, you could probably do it for a week. Could you do it for a month? Could you do it for a year? Could you do it for 10 years? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty rough, right? So these are survival signals, physiological survival signals that are not designed to be overridden forever. And so I think even though we do have obviously conscious control over what our eating behavior is, the, these systems are making very strong suggestions to us that it's very difficult to ignore forever. Right. Yeah. And sometimes uh, like we've had patients that have, uh, 
you know, some abnormalities with their total body water levels, right? And so sometimes, depending on what we think is going on, we'll have them do like a free water restriction. They just can't eat or drink um, for a period of time. And for them, particularly if they're used to consuming large amounts of water, it is absolute torture for them. And, and again, they're getting that signal, the perception, hey, you are dehydrated right now and you need more water. And so, yeah, that's not a fun thing to watch. It's, uh, yeah, pretty pretty interesting how people react to that, but um, happens nonetheless. Uh, but I, I think it would, it would be fair to say that these hungers, sort of uh, this experience that you, you get from, again, um, these signals being uh, mostly originating in the brain, kind of drive eating-related eating behaviors. So things like food-seeking, acquiring food, actual consumption. Um, in your book, you kind of describe this whole process as like a selection problem. So if you had to like summarize, like how do humans go about determining, you know, what to eat and how much of it, how does that, you know, the hunger signal sort of relate to what ends up on your plate and then in your belly? So I guess this question could be answered in a variety of ways. Um, but I think that a lot of the answer to this and the way that I'm going to answer it, it has to do with habits. So for example, most people habitually eat at a certain time of day. And so we are typically going to eat at a particular time of day and there might be snacks in between, but most people eat at, you know, somewhat defined meal times. And um and then the types of foods that we select are also to a large extent according to habit. So we have these habits that have been stamped in as a result of uh, reward loops previously in our lives, as well as our you know conscious desires and beliefs for what we want to eat. And then all of that interacts with hunger in that hunger will impact how much of what's in front of us we eat, and it will also impact our selection of foods. So when we feel more hungry, typically we will tend to select more calorie-dense foods. And of course, not surprisingly, we'll tend to eat overall a larger amount of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more energy and uh yeah, maybe more rapidly too in, in, in yeah. many cases. Yep. Um, and, and so again, just kind of going back to this, all right, well, how are we deciding, if you will? It, how much of this is, again, conscious versus occurring mostly at the subconscious level? Uh, again, you're made aware of the signal, hungry. Uh, you have some habits that in play, that, and so these are kind of combined together, and then you end up eating. But the, you know, I think people want to know, well, where does that decision actually happen? Am I doing this with my own free will or is this mostly kind of hardwired in? Yeah. I mean, I think it's both. Habits are not something that involve a lot of thought. I mean, by definition, that's what a habit is. It's something that you've done so much that it doesn't require conscious processing or effort anymore. It's just kind of an automatic routine. So Maybe it involved conscious, a conscious decision at some point. Like maybe you said, okay, you know, a while ago you said, okay, well, noon is the convenient time for me to be eating because of my work schedule or whatever. You might have made that decision a few times. And then after that, it becomes habitual and you kind of forget about it. And uh, I think it's similar with food selection. So we 
make, uh, we decide what types of food we want to eat. And then typically we're not going to think about it a whole lot after we've done that habitually a number of times. It's just, it kind of becomes automatic. And I think when it comes to food selection, I think people may not be aware of the degree to which that is influenced by non-conscious factors like reward. So basically, some foods, by virtue of their physical and chemical properties, are more seductive to the brain than others. So some foods cause more dopamine to be released, and they tend to trigger higher levels of motivation in the people who eat them more motivation to consume and repeat purchase and consume those foods. And then eventually that gets stamped in as a habit. Like this is one of the foods that I just normally eat. So, you know, and a lot of this stuff we don't think about, but just to give you an example, like the consumption of salt. I mean, we eat way more salt than is physiologically necessary, right? In, in affluent countries, we eat like something like probably eight to 10 times more salt than is physiologically necessary. And that's just something we do without even thinking about it. It's in the bread. We put salt on our eggs. We put salt in stuff that we cook. And we don't really, we don't really think about it. But the reason we do that is because that is a rewarding nutrient that stimulates dopamine release in the brain. And that, you know, because of that, it is motivating to us. It tastes good. We like it. And so we do it. And that's not really something that we give a lot of thought to. And that, that, is, that is one example that I think is, it's a particularly good example because it's so physiologically unnecessary for us to consume that. Um, but you could make a similar argument about other things. Like why do people prefer, why do most people prefer white bread over whole grain bread? I mean- it's tasty. <laughs> yeah. Sales of 100% whole grain bread, I don't know what they are relative to white bread, but I'd be surprised if it was even 10%. And that's only like the health nuts like me who will go out and actually buy the whole, you know, whole grain bread. Um, most people just will habitually buy the white bread. They think it, it tastes better. It's more rewarding. It's what they're used to. That reward loop has stamped in that preference in their brain. And then, you know, sugar, like, Sugar is also physiologically unnecessary, yet it's added to all kinds of other things. Like it gets added to bread, just as one example. Um, it's totally unnecessary in bread. It's just a you know flavor and reward enhancer. It gets people to come back and buy that product again. And so, I think, you know, I think there's a lot below the surface that people don't realize. Um, is non-consciously impacting their eating behaviors. And obviously we do have some conscious ability to modify our eating behaviors. And, you know, there are some people, some people are more conscious about it than others. Like some people are very conscious about their eating behaviors. And probably those are the people who are most likely to object to what I'm saying here. The people who are like thinking hard about every little morsel that's on their plate and what role is playing in their body composition or health or whatever. And there are people like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not like totally hardcore about it, but I, I'm somewhat there myself. Um, but I don't think that's how the average person eats. 
I think the average person eats very intuitively. They eat foods they like and that they're accustomed to, and they eat it until they feel full. And those intuitive factors that I just listed, what foods you like, what foods you're habituated to, what, when, the point at which you feel full, those are not things that you're choosing for yourself. Those are things that are coming out of non-conscious brain systems or are part of your life history. Yeah. So that's my overall perspective. Yeah, that's, uh, that jives with kind of uh, our, our current understanding and kind of what we've been saying for a, co- uh, a couple of years now. Um, one thing I wanted to get your take on was uh, insofar as people are choosing the foods eat, where they make a habit of these things, how important is the food environment to, to that sort of process? And so again, food environment, obviously we could scale it from, hey, what's in the house all the way to what's in the house, what's at work, what's in your community, what's in your state, whatever. But how important is our food environment in, in effectively shaping I guess, what we're eating and maybe what we don't even have access to. I think it's enormously important. You know, I mean, people in the U.S. eat different foods than people in Japan, right? <laughs> and if you look at uh, obesity rates in Japan, Japan is is very much an outlier among affluent countries. Obesity rates are much lower there. But when people from Japan emigrate to the United States, there are studies on this. Japanese immigrants to Hawaii, they gain a ton of fat. So they don't stay lean when they come to the U.S. and start adopting more American-type eating habits. So, yeah, um, food environment is tremendously important. And, you know, you you think about, we don't even have to leave the country. Just think about what's happened in the U.S. over the last 50 years. So the food environment has changed tremendously. Obesity rates have changed tremendously. I don't think you can explain the increase in obesity by genetic change. So it has to be the environment. And maybe it's not entirely food. There could be other things too. But my opinion is that food is the main thing. So I think the food environment is tremendously important. And that's that's kind of the big picture macro perspective. Um, but on a micro perspective, you know, if you just think about we're surrounded by food these days, and not only surrounded by food, but surrounded by highly processed seductive calorie dense foods the very type of food that pushes our reward buttons pushes our dopamine buttons tends to create and sustain hard to control eating behaviors and doesn't produce a lot of satiety in that we tend to overconsume and is also very convenient i think that's a big one convenience because if you have to you know one of the things i'll say sometimes in interviews is if we had exactly the same type of food that we have today in modern America, but you had to walk three miles and climb a tree to get it, there probably would be a lot less obesity than there is, right? Because yeah. there's that effort barrier there. Yeah, we look like the but, heights of tribe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But today, there's there is no there's almost no effort barrier. Like it just surrounds us, and all we have to do is open a bag and start putting, you know, food in our mouth. So. It's, I mean, this is like the perfect storm for creating obesity. Like we're humans are animals. Like we, we do animal stuff, like eat food when it's tasty and in front of us, you know, and to expect more of us, I think is unrealistic as a species. You know, you do this in any other species, you put them in a situation where they can get highly preferred, easily accessible food and not have to do any work for it. And they develop obesity immediately if they're physiologically able to do so. 
that happens in in uh, rats. It happens in mice. It happens in uh, raccoons and bears and monkeys that get human food in tourist situations or that have easy access to human trash. This is like it's not just a human thing. This is this is just what happens to animals in that kind of scenario. Yeah, people people ask. They're like, all right, well, how do we look? We're in an obesity epidemic. Like, how do we how do we fix it? Right? We just we need to. People need more willpower, they need more motivation, and they need more exercise. Eat, eat more, move less. And we're like, well, there's some health promoting, you know, stuff in there buried down deep. If you could change people's behaviors to result in those things, but as long as surrounding virtually every person in America, there's easily accessible, cheap, energy dense, calorie dense foods with added sugars, added sodium, added fat that kind of light up, you know, those reward areas of the brain. <sighs> Man. It's going to be tough unless they all of a sudden the food scientists are like, now, now, now we're going to keep the composition the same, but we're going to make them more filling somehow too. Like if they were super satiating, we're like, okay, hey, thanks guys. And there are some people trying to do this. There are, there are like people like Kevin Hall, I think is really focused on how do we take, his, his perspective is like ultra processed food isn't going anywhere. How do we make it better? And that's cool. I mean, somebody should be working on it, but I feel pretty skeptical that that's actually feasible. Like, I think the things, and, and I would love to be proven wrong about this, but I think the things that you could do to ultra processed food to make it less fattening would also make it less appealing because the things that make it appealing are the things that make it fattening. Right. Um, you know, calorie density, combination of carbohydrate and fat, easy digestibility, uh, a nice texture, easy to eat texture, convenience. And I don't know. Again, I would love to be proven wrong, and maybe someday I will be wrong. But it seems kind of like, I mean, the battle against obesity to me is like the battle against human nature. I think <laughs> right. that's kind of what we're what we're facing. Oh, I was just more kind of getting trying to get at the brass tacks of again how do how do we decide and where does that decision level occur? But I think you summarized it nicely that you know. If it's if something's available to us, it's highly rewarding, um, and we, we're we're hungry. That's the, all of these factors are going to come into ultimately determining what's on our plate. So I think you. Yeah, I had something else I wanted to relate along these lines. You mentioned exercise. Um, you were saying people need more willpower and need to exercise more, or that that would be a perspective that you disagree with. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. the The original studies. I think I think one of the most important seminal studies on understanding obesity was done by Anthony Scalfani in the 70s when um, he demonstrated that putting a, a variety of easily accessible human junk foods in a cage with a rat was the fastest and most reliable way to produce obesity in, in rats that, that there was. And still to this day, calorie-dense, tasty human food is by far the most effective way to fatten a rodent there's no other thing like there's no amount of sugar or fat or anything that you can put in a rodent pellet that will get them as fat as quick as just regular tasty human food easily accessible yeah you put that stuff in their cage and they'll completely ignore uh healthy nutritionally complete rodent pellets they'll completely ignore those and they'll gorge on the peanut butter and the salami and the candy and the cereal and whatever you put in condensed milk was one of the things. 
and uh, and they'll rapidly develop obesity. But one of the things that he did in this study that doesn't get talked about as much, but I think is also interesting, is in one of the experiments, he gave them running wheels. And rodents love to run on running wheels. They will spontaneously do like large amounts of exercise if you just put one in their cage. Actually, funny anecdote, you can put running wheels like in the middle of the desert and wild rodents will come up and start running on them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice. All right. So I don't know. They just have this like drive to run. They love it. So anyway, you put that in their cages. And what he found is that the exercise attenuated but did not eliminate the obesity that the animals experienced. So they gained maybe like something like 60 or 70% as much weight, as much excess weight as the animals that did not have the running wheel when they were given this. So I think exercise, and obviously that's a rodent study. I think the human literature overall is consistent with it. But yeah, I think exercise has some value if you do enough of it. But it doesn't, it's not going to completely solve the problem if you have a bad food environment. It's just going to mitigate it. That's my opinion. Yeah. It's kind of like we have these, we're in a food desert, or most people, many people are in a food desert, right? Just surrounded by this, what we would just call not health promoting food. They're also, in some cases, in a physical activity or exercise desert where it's like we don't have places to be active that's safe, that's accessible, and whatnot. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you were trying to, if you're really trying to make a population of animals obese, you would have this food environment and then also not allow them to exercise. I don't know that yeah. humans spontaneously want to run. I mean, the Tata Ramen, they might yeah. <laughs> want to run all the time. But I, I think if you give people access, they're likely to increase exercise rates for sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you you look at people like walkable areas. I mean, I don't know if it's like the exercise in particular that people like, but they like to be able to walk. It's a nice feeling to not have to get in your car to go to the grocery store or something like that. Um, I think, I don't know, I'm making an assumption here, but I think this is true that most people would in the US would prefer their neighborhoods to be more walkable. Yeah. And, but regardless of that, whether people prefer it or not, if your physical environment is one that promotes higher levels of physical activity, then you will tend to get more physical activity. So just a couple of examples, if you live in a neighborhood where you know, there, it's really easy to walk to the grocery store or restaurant or whatever, and it would be, or, and maybe parking's inconvenient or expensive or something like that, you're probably gonna walk. If you work in a building where the stairs are really prominent and the elevator is off to the side and not as visible, you're gonna be more likely to use the stairs. Uh, yeah, the way the physical environment is constructed has a big impact on our physical activity patterns. I mean, I, I think the lesson of all this, both in the physical activity and in the food, is if you give, I mean, people are just going to go with the flow mostly. I mean, right. some path of least some, resistance or something. Yeah. Yeah. Some eccentrics like me are going to like make a point to always use the stairs instead of the elevator whenever I can. But like when I'm at the airport, I'm often the, there people will be crowded on the escalators and I'm the only person going up the stairs. And I'm like this is free exercise guys. Like you've been sitting on a plane for hours and here we have a chance to like limber your legs up a little bit. And and yet 
no one is taking it. I bet if they put the stairs first, like if you came off the plane, you exited the the gate, you know, the gate, and the the stairs were first, and then you know, two hundred yards down the way is the escalator. I bet you'd see more people on the stairs, though. Yeah, if you made it, if you made it slightly more convenient, because I don't think people are like militant about taking the escalator over the stairs. I think it's just slightly more convenient, and so it's slightly easier, and so they just get into that habit of getting on the escalator. But this this is what I'm saying is that the our environment, both our food environment and our physical activity environment has a huge influence on our, on our behavior. And you can be an eccentric and not go with the flow and do your own thing and eat healthier food and exercise a bunch. But most people are not going to be like that. Most people are just going to go with the flow, eat the foods that are around and do the easiest physical thing, easiest or more, most obvious, most convenient thing that can be done physically. And in our current environment, that's optimized for, well, optimized for different things, but certainly convenience is one of them. That's going to tend to lead people to eat unhealthy food and not be physically active. Yeah. I refuse to believe that people set out on a course to, to become, you know, develop excess body fat or to lose physical fitness or, you know, whatever. I refuse yeah. to believe that people are actively choosing to do that. It's more of a result of... Yeah, well, this is uh, much more comfortable and much more convenient, and uh, yeah, this, the result is is not terribly surprising. So yeah, that's right. And you know, this this comes back to this this gives me a thought that kind of touches back on some of the questions you were asking earlier about the conscious versus non conscious brain. Um, if you think about it, like, no, I mean, who wants to overeat? Who wants to <laughs> right. consume enough calories? that they gradually gain fat, develop overweight, eventually develop obesity, maybe type 2 diabetes, maybe has a heart attack, you know. No nobody wants that for themselves. So why do they do it? Well, that implies that there are different parts of the brain that have different motivations. There's a part of the brain that has, you know, healthy, rational, constructive goals for ourselves, and then there's another part of the brain that just wants to satisfy basic urges like hunger and cravings and habits and stuff like that. And those two parts of the brain are in conflict. And in most people, this, the second one is winning. Yeah. Yeah. Again, because there are so many examples of people who are highly intelligent, Nobel Prize winners, you know, business, you know, tycoons, uh, software developer, like whatever. They People have done great things, legitimately great things require a high level of intelligence and work ethic and, and whatnot who are dealing with obesity, right? And, and it's like to, to assume that they're at the same time being brilliant, but also lazy, dumb, whatever other stigmatization that we've done with people who, you know, with obesity, that it just seems like you cannot hold those two things in your brain at the same time. And so yeah. when, I, when I, when I try to explain this to people, I'm like, you, you think people are choosing to do this in today's yeah. so current climate, like socially and, and whatever, like maybe historically when having excess adiposity was like a marker of, <laughs> right. you know, affluence or whatever, but certainly not now. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a great argument. It makes a lot of sense. And then there's also the genetics thing. So something like 75% of the differences in body fatness between individuals in today's society are explained by genetics. What do, what do you think about Speakman? Uh, I assume you're familiar with uh, Dr. Speakman's argument, this dual intervention point 
kind of model on like, mm-hmm. it, which basically says like, look, over the last you know 50 years in particular, obesity rates have gone wild. And our environment has changed markedly, but our genes maybe haven't, you know, had enough time to change uh, too significantly. So his thought was that, look, on the one, on the low end for body fat, there's like this defense point where you can't go below this because you'll die of illness or whatever. But, and there's a high end that you defend against because any higher than that, you either get sick or you're prey. Effectively, you can't (laughs) avoid a predator. Now that we don't have any predatory sort of consequences, well, we've had a genetic drift, if you will, towards that higher end. Do you think that it can be explanatory or, you know, when you talk about 75% of people's difference in body fat being genetically related, I assume listeners are like, well, what am I supposed to do about that? Or how do I, how do I reconcile this? You know? Yeah. So I've, I've discussed this with John a fair bit and we have, I think have some similarities and differences in how we think. I mean, I agree with him that there probably has been not very much selection for systems to uh, limit body fatness in in humans historically. So um, let me try to put that in a in a way that's more understandable. So we have this system that's I would say pretty well characterized that defends against weight loss. So your body fat starts going down, alarm bells start going off in your hypothalamus, you get more hungry, et cetera, et cetera. And in most people, the weight comes back. So we have a system that defends against weight loss for sure. And I think the question is, why do we not have a system that's equally vigorous that defends against weight gain? Like how can people gain weight over time? And, and there is a system actually, at least in some people that defends against weight gain, you can see it in overfeeding studies. Um, if you cause people to gain a large amount of fat over a short period of time, what you'll see is that at the end of the period, when you stop overfeeding them, their weight will drop really fast and their appetite will be like gone for a while. And then, and then it will slowly rebound. Their appetite will rebound as their weight approaches their former weight. So they don't really hold on to that excess weight, most people, in from short-term overfeeding. So there is some kind of system, but over long periods of time, obviously, most people don't have their their neurobiological hardware is not uh, preventing them from, from gaining a large amount of fat. So, um, I, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. I would agree with John that it makes sense that we don't have a powerful system on that end of things, because if you think about it historically, obesity was just not an issue for hunter gatherers. Like I literally, of all the anthropology I've read in hunter gatherer societies, I've literally never come across an account of a traditionally living hunter gatherer who had obesity. And it's not even common to find people who would qualify as overweight. Like that's pretty rare itself, but someone with obesity, I mean, I've literally never come across that. So, and I'm not saying it it has never occurred, but I think it's gotta be pretty rare. Um, and you know, you look at agricultural societies and there may be more, more weight than hunter, more heavier people than hunter gatherers, but still obesity is really uncommon in traditionally living subsistence agriculturalists, people who are growing their own food, eating what they grow. And um, so like, I just don't think it was an issue 
historically for humans. Like if you want to develop obesity as a hunter gatherer, why, like, why would you go through all that extra effort to get food you don't need just so you could accumulate additional fat? Like it doesn't make any sense because going out to get that food comes along with risk and effort. It doesn't make any sense to go out and acquire that additional food. So, um, and then, you know, farmers, agriculturalists too, like <laughs> growing all those crops is a lot of work. Are you going to, are you going to do even more work so that you can have unneeded extra calories to, to develop obesity? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So it only makes sense when the effort cost is like zero, like in our current environment, the, the effort and monetary cost is, is very low today by historical standards. And so, um, so yeah, I think it makes sense that we didn't evolve a system that protects against weight loss that's, or protects against weight gain that's as effective as the one that protects against weight loss. That said, where I disagree with John is um, he, I think in his model, there's like a lower intervention point and then there's an upper one that's either, you know, pretty high up or not very defined at all. And I think, I think a better description of what we see is that the set point, there's, there's a kind of set point that's increasing as people gain weight, or you could call it a defended range of weights. I'm, I'm not attached to the word set point. People like to dispute that term. Uh, I don't care what we call it, but there's a defended body weight or body weight range that changes over time. So, and here's the reason I think that it's because if you look at people with obesity who go on weight loss diets, you see a similar kind of starvation response by the brain and the body that you would see with a lean person losing weight. So, so people with obesity are not just passively at that higher weight. Their brains, their body fat regulatory system is defending that higher weight against weight loss. And that's why that's a key reason, probably the key reason why weight loss is so difficult and tends not to be sustainable for people is because their brain activates a starvation response. And that's, you know, a physiological survival signal that again is is really hard to fight over the long run. So I think I think of it not so much as these fixed limits but as a kind of point or range that changes over time as a person gains weight. Yeah. No, I agree. In a perfect world, what you would want is if somebody's energy stores expand past a healthy level, we'll say, that they would compensate by appetite going down, energy intake going down, maybe motivation to exercise or move goes up. And so, and they would ultimately slide back to that healthy body fat level. And in a small subset of people that happens, the obesity yes, resistance exactly. phenotype. I was going to yeah. say that it does, it does happen that way in some lucky people. Yeah. But even like when you took, look at these overfeeding studies, particularly on twins, you see this massively large difference in how they respond afterwards because some people just aren't set up that way. And the obesity sensitive phenotype, which seems to be more and more prevalent, um, yeah, they're, they're, they don't compensate. And so like 
when I think about obesity, as far as like what's really going on at the base level, I'm like, it's this sort of defense of, you know, energy balance at a higher than normal, higher than healthy level of body fat. And as far as why that's happening, I would hang my hat mostly on food availability in the environment that we're in and some maybe genetic drift towards, you know, uh, being more sensitive to that. But, you know, in any in any case, the GLP-1 agonists and similar anti-obesity medications seem to be a pretty potent intervention for these things, uh, mainly through regulating appetite and satiety sort of, you know, uh, uh, signals as it were, but, uh, which we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, but again, the hate mail we get from this stuff from the medication is crazy. Cause people are like, Oh, you just want to give people this magic pill or this quick fix or whatever. And it's like, uh, well, there are no other fixes that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the alternative. <laughs> that's my, that's my answer. I'm like, well, tell me what your, you know, what the better solution is. What's the preferable solution? Cause I mean, there are a lot of I mean, everybody wants to fix the environment. Obviously, the food environment is, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but my opinion is that the food environment is the main driver of the obesity epidemic. And yeah, we should fix it. And that would be wonderful if we could. But it just, if you think about what would be required to do that, and you think about the fact that it has never been done successfully in any country to date, like there's no country that has changed their food environment and there's strong evidence that that has reduced the rate of obesity in that country. And that's despite countries having done interventions, they just haven't been successful. And you think about the fact that the average calorie intake of the average American has increased by probably like 250 calories a day to reverse that. I mean, that's a lot. That's like 10, a 10% change. To, so to implement a public health policy that would cause a 10% reduction in average calorie intake, and that's that's actually downplaying it because really you don't need to reduce calorie intake in people who are lean. You only need to reduce calorie intake in the subset of the population that carries excess fat. And so it's more than 10% if you're just applying it to that, if you're only applying it the increase to that subset. So we're talking about causing calorie intake to decline on a public health level by like 15%. That's, I mean. Can you imagine all the policy changes that would need to take place across governmental agencies, food manufacturers, food distributors, city planet, like whatever, the whole thing. And there's no way it would be political feasible in the United States. Like people don't want the government telling them how to eat in the United States. And so there's no way that the kind of sweeping intensive changes to our food system that would be required to make that happen would be politically feasible in this country. At least at this time it's very difficult for me to imagine that. And so yeah, and so you know, my perspective is show me the evidence. If you think you have a better solution, show me the evidence that it actually works. Because I can show you the evidence that GLP-1 receptor agonists work. It's very strong evidence, but nobody to date has shown me evidence that any of these public health interventions can have a substantial impact on obesity rates. I assume, I assume the 2025 to 2030 dietary guidelines are just going to say, it's going to be a one line, <laughs> fix the food environment. 
And then the rest of the PDF is just going to be authors. It's just like, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, no, it's we, just we're going to say GLP-1 receptor agonists in the water. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Put that in the poly pill. No, <laughs> I, the hate mail from the, it's going to be off the chains. Remember it's media, barbellmedicine.com. Send me your hate mail. <laughs> we'll read those. Um, no, and again, anybody that uh, confirms my biases on, on air, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature. Maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I just wanted to switch gears a little bit because this I, I read your article on nutrition misinformation and I know we talked, we wrapped about uh, Red Pen reviews before we before we got on the on this call. So I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. The piece was excellent. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, so I just kind of want to know, like, obviously you're heavily active on Twitter. If you guys are on Twitter and you're not following uh, Dr. Guiné, like, great follow, a lot of interesting studies, interesting takes on studies, and, and just information in general. But I assume you're just exposed to even more type of nutrition misinformation than than we are, and we you know we get tagged and sent all this stuff, and I'm like. I don't know how we fix this, but, you know, writing an article about it to try to characterize, like, what is the scope of the problem? What are the actual harms there? That's something we have, we haven't undertaken and, and you kind of did that. So when you're talking about nutrition misinformation, I assume that it comes in multiple different flavors, 
right? There's just stuff that's like, eh, that's not really true, but I don't know, I'll give you a pass versus stuff that this is demonstrably true. Like, what's your angle? What are you selling? And other stuff that's just outright harmful. Um, what's your kind of take on, like, what is the scope of the problem? If you got a hundred pieces out there published amongst lay press and blogs and whatever, what percentage of those would you, you know, count as misinformation? Yeah. And the first thing I want to say is I want to talk a little bit about the definition of misinformation before we get into that. Um, Cause I think this is actually su- surprisingly thorny um, to define like what is misinformation and what's not misinformation. And there's not really a bright line. So misinformation, I think a good definition is false or misleading information. It doesn't have to be deliberate. doesn't have to be a lie spread with deliberate knowledge, but just false or misleading information. Um, but like, where do you draw the line at what's false or misleading? The truth is that there is no line. And so it's, um, I use the word misinformation because people know what I'm talking about when I say it. But I think uh, a better term is information quality because misinformation basically cleaves information into you know, accurate versus misinformation. And really, there's there's no bright line between those two. It's a gradient of accuracy, a gradient of misleadingness. Like some things can be a little bit misleading, some things can be very misleading, and there's not or anything in between. And you have to draw kind of an arbitrary line and say this is misinformation, this is not misinformation. So I think talking about information quality is. Uh, is a more nuanced way to talk about it. And that's what we do at Red Pen Reviews. We don't say this is misinformation, this is not. We actually score the information quality on a semi-quantitative zero to four scale. So if something's a little misleading, it might get a three instead of a four. If something's highly misleading, it might get a one. If it's backwards from what the evidence says, it would get a zero. So we have this you know, scale for information quality that we use. So I just wanted to throw that nuance out there. I'll probably keep using the word misinformation just because people know what I'm talking about. But um, I just wanted to to explain that. Um, But in terms of the scope of the problem, nobody really knows because there's been very little research on it. You know, and so like, Probably a lot of the nutrition misinformation that's out there is on the internet, it's on web pages, it's on social media. But when I did a literature review for this article, there is so little research quantifying the information quality of that nutrition information. So, really, nobody knows. I mean, I think we all know that there's a ton of misinformation, right? I think that's obvious, but like what percentage of the information is is low quality? Nobody really knows. But what I can say is that um, the books that we review at Red Pen Reviews, the information quality of those on average is low to moderate. So if we if we call it if we divide it up into low, moderate, and high quality information, on average, it tends to be low to moderate. And if you go on our scoring pages, we have um, for each book we have score bars that show um, that give the books a numerical score, 
And those are color coded as red, yellow, or green. And that corresponds to low, uh, moderate, or high information quality. And in scientific accuracy, the average, we've done 21 book reviews now. The average book is getting uh, below 50% scientific accuracy score. So that's considered low information accuracy. And then for reference accuracy and healthfulness, on average, they're getting moderate um, moderate scores. So in the yellow zone, that's 50 uh, to 75%. But there's a huge range across all of those. That's the average. But within that average, I mean, some books are getting 97, some books are in the 20s. So um, there's huge variability. So it's not like they're all garbage, but on average, it's it's very poor. And I want to talk about a little bit about the representativeness of that sample, because we're not random sampling <laughs> right. Yeah. What we're trying to do is review books that are the most impactful to the public. So we're trying to review the books that people are reading the most, that are impacting public discourse the most, because we're really trying to help people as much as possible and have as much positive impact as we can. So it's not a random sample, but these are, I think, fairly representative of the books that people are reading the most. And so I do think it's informative. Um, but honestly, what I just told you, which is just the average and the distribution of scores from our reviews, that's some of the best data that there is out there right now, even though it's not a random sample. It's some of the best data because there's so little information out there right now. So when I wrote my article, that was the most important piece of information I had on the prevalence of misinformation in, or I should say, on information quality in the popular nutrition sphere because there's nobody as far as i know that's out there like doing s systematically looking at twitter threads and scoring them or that sort of thing no we need to get like the uh, one of google's crawlers to just crawl the internet and like p pick all these pieces and then a team of grad students to go review them for accuracy have this huge data set but one of the most interesting things uh, in that article and you've, you've tweeted this graphic a few times um this sort of relationship between how popular a book is on Amazon and <laughs> its like scientific accuracy. What the graph showed is that there's no relationship at all. Mm, yeah. So there's no relationship between the Red Pen Review's um, overall score for a book and its Amazon star rating. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, it's not that the um, more popular books were worse. It's just that they weren't better. There was no difference. Do you think that's related? I mean, people, when they buy books, I, so look, we do another podcast with a behavior, behaviorist and talk about why do people buy books? Like what do they, what, what's, what draws somebody to purchase a, and read a, a certain book? But is there something different about popular books um, and maybe like a more accurate book like yours, The Hungry Brain, um, as far as the type of information or how the information is sort of delivered? You know, I know people prefer like concrete statements. People prefer prefer folks who are charismatic, engaging, and, and, and whatever, maybe telling stories, if you will. Uh, and maybe that they get a, you know, more, more of an audience that way rather than like saying maybe or in some cases or there's nuance or whatever. I don't know. People seem to not like that from in, in science communication. So are you asking about like if you're reading a book, what you could look for to judge its information quality? 
That's where I was going, yeah, because, again, people are like, well, how do I identify a good scientific communicator yeah. who's giving me accurate information, or how do I know what I'm reading isn't, you know, completely FOS? And it's like, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if I have a, a good algorithm for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be hard to judge. It can be really hard to judge because people can be very, writers can be very persuasive, and a lot of times they will be citing evidence, they will be discussing evidence, but they'll be doing it in a way that's misleading or just not very high quality. So just to give you an example of how that can happen, someone might um, discuss a particular study. Let's say it's in a field where there have been 20 studies done on a question. They pick the one study that is partially supportive of their hypothesis, and then they only report Half, the half of the study that is fully supportive of their hypothesis and omit the other half that's not supportive. So, you know, that's just one example. And you could, <laughs> I know writers, you know, I, writers are coming to mind to me who do this, like they could wax poetic about how amazing the study is and how, you know, uh, prominent and respected the, the, the researcher is and like really like put everything, you know, what, Ivy League school they're doing research at and really like try to puff up this piece of evidence that supports their belief and then just completely ignore the, you know, 95% of the literature that is contrary to that. And so it can be hard. I just, you know, I just want to acknowledge that it can be hard. And, and I've been misled too. Like I'm, I consider myself to be, uh, pretty skeptical, but I've been misled at times too, and I've had to come back and be like, wow, this 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 was not accurate at all when I really started to dig into something. And I still have this experience sometimes where I would say more often than not, when I'm reviewing a book for Red Pen Reviews, I'll read it and I'll be mm -hmm. like, you know, it makes some pretty good <laughs> points. I I uh some of this uh, interesting arguments, you know, I I feel like maybe some of this could be um, could be right. And then I start looking into it. And I'm like, this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you got me again. Dang it. <laughs> yeah. And I start looking at the citations and I'm just like, no, this is not, this is not a reasonable interpretation of the evidence at all. And, and I want to clarify too, like I'm not out to get anybody in my reviews. Right. We're really try to give the authors the benefit of the doubt. I'm not being a huge stickler when I do these reviews. And yet most of them are turn out pretty unfavorable um, just by applying basic standards of evidence. And uh, okay, so I, I'm going on and on without <laughs> answering your question here, but I think there are some things you can look for um, that will help you catch the, the worst offenders. And one of them is unusual or extraordinary claims. So if the book is like, hey, uh, the majority of the research community and medical community is wrong uh, about X. I've got the real story. Here it is. Um, and it's some like, it sounds like, it, it reads like, you know, a one weird trick ad that you would see on, you know, YouTube or something. Like one weird trick to lose 10 pounds of belly fat in one month, you know, like, revolving around something you've never heard of that 
seems not very widely accepted in the scientific community. I think when you see those kinds of unusual or extraordinary claims, or people are heavily exaggerating, like the amount of weight loss that a person could re- realistically lose in in a month or something, I think those are signs that this person does not have a good story. Um, I think also kind of conspiracy type narratives like Mm -hmm. they tried to make you sick or fat like the government did this or that or medical establishment did this or that and they lied to you and like trying to you know paint this kind of conspiracy narrative or try to paint other people try to paint people that disagree with them as um not just wrong but bad like they're bad Mm -hmm. people and they're unethical and and i think those are those are bad signs too there are other ways that are more time intensive so you can look at citations and see if they support the author's claim if there's a key claim the author's making and there's a key citation they're using to support it look it up see what it says and then go to pubmed or google scholar and do a quick search and see if there's any other studies on that topic and see if they agree with it or if they're at odds with it. Yeah. It ends up being more of like a, and a lot of this, this stuff ends up being more reference-based sort of science rather than evidence-based. Yeah. It's like, oh, I could find a, uh, one reference to support my point. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not evidence-based, you know, sort of practice or scientific communication. That's more like you found something and then you put a, you know, a little superscript by it and you're like, good, good to go, move on. And it's like, it's not usually how this works. Yeah, that's right. That came up on Twitter the other day. Um, yeah, and I think that it's very easy for people to be misled by what would you call it? Reference-based medicine? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or refer- reference-based medicine or reference-based science. Yeah. I think it's very easy for people to be misled by that because scientific evidence lends legitimacy to a conclusion. So if you can cite evidence, it makes it look supported, even if that evidence and the way you're interpreting it is not a high quality interpretation of the body of evidence as a whole. A- Andrew Huberman has entered the chat. No, I'm just kidding. We'll uh, <laughs> <laughs> edit that one out. Uh, I, I, am, I do want to be respectful of your time. I think this has been excellent. We could talk for hours, but for our listenership and for your sake, I will I – will, uh, decline. <laughs> Just two quick questions. We try to ask all of our uh, guests, um, guest uh, uh, speakers to make a book recommendation and then tell us where we can find out uh, more about you, where you're doing your work and how people can uh, can find you. Yeah, I like, uh, I think I'm going to go with Salt, Sugar, Fat by Michael Moss. Um, that's mm-hmm. one of my go-tos. And that really helps understand how we got to where we are today in terms of how our food system evolved and how food corporations, the role of food corporations in bringing us our modern food environment. And I think it kind of underlines uh, how much deliberate effort there was in that process of getting our food environment to be what it is today. Oof, doom and gloom. All right, I like it. Uh, and then people can, can can find you on Twitter. We'll link your Twitter uh, below. Are you on Substack? Are you writing anywhere else or just no. people? No, I haven't had time lately to to write long form. Yeah, 
All right. Yeah, well, that means he's busy. So uh, we'll link all that in the description below. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. And uh, yeah, it was great. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right. That's a wrap on episode 246. Again, shout out to Dr. Guillain for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully you did too. And just a reminder, we have new YouTube videos. Go check those out. The uh, tech support episode three is up. Also some Q&A videos. And then also today is the last day for uh, the PeriRx sale, 15% off uh, for PeriRx with caffeine. Again, it's all new and use code Perry15 at checkout to get your discount. And thanks again for listening. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.